0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 272, Quantum Gaming. We're joined this week by indie game designer, Jonathan Blow, to speak about his time-bending game, Braid, and his experience of game design as a spiritual practice. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm really happy and excited to be joined today by Jonathan Blow. Jonathan, awesome to have you on The Buddhist Geek Show. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, just a little intro um, so people kind of get a sense for what your background is. Um, you're an independent video game developer and designer. I think you're probably best known to, uh, to most people as the creator of a game called Braid, um, which came out in 2008 and received a huge amount of acclaim for being a really kind of unique game. And we'll, we'll talk about that, I hope. Um, and you're also now developing uh, a new game called, uh, and, and for most people, they'll, they'll be familiar with this term on Buddhist Geeks, uh, called The Witness. And this is going to be, I think you're hoping to release it next year sometime, 2013, yeah?
1: Well, the original hope was 2011, then it became 2012, and now it's 2013. But I think this time we've really uh, just about
0: done, so it should be fine. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I wanted to start off just by asking you about your personal background. And in particular, how did you get into this field of game development and design? Um, and, and then uh, because it's pretty clear, looking at the work that you're doing, that you're doing something kind of unique. You're, you're not creating you know like this typical like first person shooter games or stuff like that. There's a real contemplative dimension to your games and to the way that you're approaching this. So if you could also maybe share how you got into that more contemplative or spiritual side of things as well.
1: Yeah, it took a long time for that to happen actually. Um, and when I was a little kid you know, seven or eight years old or something. It was a time in the 80s when, uh, or I guess the late 70s, when video arcades were a thing and you could go find arcade games, you know. And uh, I just, I really enjoyed them. Like, there was just that youthful, like, being really excited about something. And I was really excited about games and I just liked to go play them. And then also at a young age, like, you know, when I was around 10 years old, I was fortunate enough to have a programming class in middle school, like in sixth grade, which was kind of crazy. Um, I guess not many schools back then had such a thing. And I just really enjoyed programming, right? And when you you have two things that you're really excited about like that, it's natural for them to combine. And so all when I was a kid up through high school, I would write little programs at home that were sort of game-like, but not really because I kind of didn't know what I was doing. But it was a good way to uh, still good practice. You know, I got better at building programs. And then that sort of took a detour uh, when I went through college and sort of learned computer science for real. And, you know, I still had little hobbyist projects in college, but they tended to be more interesting computer science-y things. Like, hey, I'm going to design a programming language now or whatever. Um, And I started my first game company with a friend after college in around... Uh, 1996 and it wasn't particularly contemplative you know our first game was a um, it was a multiplayer science fiction war game where you drive hover tanks around and try and you know take over uh, some territory right but it was still thoughtful in a certain way that I was trying to come in and do something uh, design wise that had not been done that was ambitious right and that, that was sort of my angle for a long time coming to video games was a I sort of saw that they had a lot more potential than was being exploited by people who make them generally there were just a lot of ideas obvious ideas that were not being done and exciting ideas that were not being explored and so for a time that was the way that I thought of things. And and I would not only, you know, try and do independent projects that had avant-garde design like that, but I would also, you know, host sessions at conferences. Um, for for eight or nine years, I hosted something called the Experimental Gameplay Workshop, which was a little miniature game development event, event inside a large conference where I would invite people who were doing experimental work to come up and, you know, I would curate the show and... You know, just try to show people, hey, look at all these uh, interesting things that are going on and not necessarily making it into mainstream games. And so that uh, that was the way I approached video games for a long time. I've always had a very contemplative side to my personality also. Uh, but there wasn't an obvious way for that to go- combine with the game-making thing for a long time. But simply because I was doing this focus on on you know avant-gardeness or something, right? But eventually, they sort of naturally folded together. And about the time that I started this game, Braid, it 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 just was time, right, to do that kind of a thing. And uh, I don't, you know, it's funny. It's one of those things where prior to doing that project, you look back at what you're doing and you don't exactly understand what it is or where it's going but then after it you look back and you see exactly how events led up to where they were right and what sort of what the point of some of those things was if it wasn't obvious at the time
0: okay interesting and i'm, I'm curious on the let's just call it the contemplative side of the street was there a particular time at your life that that became more of the foreground or the the kind of um more of an important area where you begin to sort of actively seek out certain practices or approaches to to kind of investigating, you know, the human experience or whatever you want to call it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I had an intense seeker kind of an urge from a very young age, you know, I don't know, preteen certainly. Um as long as I can remember. And I became some kind of an active seeker in college because that, you know, you go out into the world on your own and you're doing your own thing and you're in Charge of your life for the first time, and that 's where I went, but I pretty rapidly got discouraged and gave up because i wasn't you know I had some internal compass pointing me toward truth, and i wasn 't encountering things that I recognized as being that truth and and I got very sad and depressed for a while, and I actually kind of thought that I put that away and, and what I really did was i, I turned that seeking impulse from being an external, you know, looking for things out in the world that match what I'm looking for. And I, I realize now that I sort of turned it more internally and it was sort of, you know, when I describe, you know, what I was doing with game design and stuff over that period from starting my first game until now, I realized that that seeking impulse was bubbling under the surface and kind of instructing everything that I did. Um, and it's, it's a little bit subtle and difficult to explain how, uh, but it was definitely there. And then at some point during the development of Braid, it was able to come out again because um, the process of designing that game was a little bit different than anything I had done before, and it allowed me to take a little bit more of a backseat and learn from the game, or um, which amounted to learning from the world. You know, prior to Braid, the way that I thought designing a game would work is my job is to be a really smart game designer and have really uh, groundbreaking ideas. And then I think really hard and I figure out how to put those ideas into a game that will be entertaining or something. And with Braid, I was very fortunate in that I started with an idea, um, and the idea was about, you know, taking all these ideas from quantum mechanics that are, you know, n- not intuitive at, at the everyday scale at which we live, but that seem to be ways that the universe works, like not necessarily having an arrow of time, or, you know, th- ideas like positions of objects being very vague and indeterminate. And I decided to try and build a game around building those up to a macro scale and just seeing what that looks like and trying to live on a human scale in in that kind of situation. And that was very exciting to me because it was about, you know, taking a mysterious aspect of the universe and sort of turning a microscope on it. And that ended up not being what Braid was. uh, Because I started with a very small part of that idea and i realized that within that little starting kernel there was more than i needed as i zoomed in and looked at it i just saw all kinds of possibilities and so to some extent i was able to take a kind of a back seat designing that game where I, it was no longer me whose job it was to come up with smart ideas it was like the ideas were there and i just had to look at this interplay of form that was happening and you know, have a little bit of impulse to sail a ship through it or, or guide my microscope or something, but it really became about just seeing what was there and curating that and showing it to people. Um, and so, you know, part of that was just luck to have such a fortunate, um, starting place for that game. But part of it was also, uh, you know, I realized that it took a little bit of design maturity. I'm not not trying to toot my own horn here, but <laughs> to to try and explain what I meant a little bit about all the other design stuff leading up somewhere. It took a little bit of design op- uh, design maturity to see that that was the opportunity, right? That I could you know turn away from this uh, I am making the good thing kind of a role and and be more of a conduit and say, well, actually, the good thing is already here, and I am. Shaping it a little at best, right mm. um, and, and so that was a real turning point, and that taught me uh, really how to design games the way that I do it now. It was a three or four year learning process, maybe the most intense one that I've ever been in, and so you know now with the new game, it's much more uh, in the vein of what braid was than, than what I used to do. I should actually, to clarify a little bit, I realized that I left something out. you know I, I had this strong seeking impulse. Um, and I said that it backgrounded, but one of the ways that it that it became active in my life uh, during that time was just in being interested in mathematics and science, especially lower level sciences like laws of physics and stuff like that. so I learned a lot of math which which worked well because when you're doing ambitious games, especially 3 d games it really helps to know a lot of mathematics um, and i don't know i don't know if you guys cover this kind of thing in the podcast, but there's a lot of um for people that are a little bit spiritually inclined there's a lot of mysteries in mathematics that are things that people have been wrestling with for a long time mm. like it it seems a little bit magical in a certain way or at least mysterious why math does what it does and it's 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 a very interesting point of discussion for at least at least the past 100 years and and certainly going back past that but but in the past 100 years we've had certain ways that we look in the universe at very tiny scales and see mathematical structures working exactly at those scales and their structures that would not have been intuitive to early, earlier civilizations. And um, that's really kind of strange. So I, I just found all of that very interesting and that maybe drove my educational process. Up until the time of designing these games.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. So, a couple things from what you said. I was wondering for the people that are, are just uh, not familiar with Braid, if you could describe kind of what the game is and what it's like.
1: <clears throat>
0: sure. So, what we
1: in the business would call it is a puzzle platformer. And what that means, you know, if you know games like Super Mario Brothers, it's a two dimensional game where you're a little person that runs around and jumps, and those are the main things that you do, is you run and jump. And in traditional versions of this kind of a game, it's mostly action challenges with a little bit of puzzling. You know, you're usually trying to time jumps over enemies who are running at you or fireballs or something, and you jump on their head to knock them out. Um, And sometimes there's little puzzles that involve trying to get somewhere. Um, And, with Braid, I enjoyed the idea of going back to that old template of a video game. It's sort of one of the classic forms of games. And the reason why is that I could do this exploration of time manipulation. Um, you know, what Braid is about, uh, mechanically, it starts with this, uh, this ability for you to turn time backwards. So it's essentially like an old Super Mario Brothers kind of a game, except if you make a mistake you can rewind just like you would rewind on a VCR or DVD player. Now, if some people don't even know what a VCR is, (laughs) that's, you know, kids these days, man, Uh, you know, uh, then, um, you know, then you just rewind and, and do things over. Um, but, but from that very tiny idea, because I was both designing the game and programming this implementation of rewinding, um, I suddenly saw a lot of different ways that that could go. And so the game from then on takes you from world to world where your ability to manipulate time takes on different flavors. So in the next world, uh, you know, you can rewind things, but some things are actually immune to your ability to rewind or they're in a different time stream, right? And that creates a whole different series of puzzles. Um, And the puzzles, instead of just being about trying to figure something out and be smart, which is what they classically are in games, because the game was able to take this form of venturing from world to world with different kinds of puzzles that arise naturally from this system of how you manipulate time, then the puzzles themselves were able to be illustrations of the answers to what-if questions. So like in another world, you show up in the world and Time is frozen, and as you walk to the right, time goes forward, and as you walk to the left, time goes backwards. So time is very intimately tied to your position, and that feels very different and strange. But it also enables us to ask what-if questions, like what what happens just naturally to objects when that's the way things behave? And there's an interesting situation uh, on, on one of the early levels in that world where Normally, if there's a monster walking by you on a ladder above you, uh, then you just wait for him to go by and then you climb up the ladder to go where you want to go. And it's a totally something that you wouldn't even think about. It's just easy. But on this world, because time is tied to your position, when you're standing at the ladder, it's always the same time. And the guy is always standing above you, blocking you. Right. So just that change of the rules what I would say the fundamental laws of the game universe that you're visiting changes the way you have to think about situations drastically. And that was very interesting. And that was all the game needed as a conceptual core. And, and then it just became exploration. Let's see what different kinds of ways of manipulating time we can have. And let's see what the natural consequences are that happen when we apply those systems uh to the world of objects that we started with. And, you know, let me just curate that and show players the best ones. And that became, uh, certainly for me, a very fascinating collection of puzzles, and I think a lot of people liked it. And then to close the loop on, on this answer, I guess, the reason why I started with a very simple Mario Brothers kind of a world is because, really, that's one of the simplest things in video games. Like video games these days are really complicated. You know, if you buy a game for an Xbox 360, you have a controller with like two joysticks and tons of buttons and things and menus where you have to go do stuff that doesn't fit on the buttons and all kinds of different creatures in the worlds and stuff. But when you go back to that old style of platformer, it's possible to have a very simple world with a very small number of objects. It's very easy to understand and very clear. And what that did was it let it serve as sort of a neutral baseline to then play with these laws of the universe and generate emergent situations that are more complex. But that complexity is easier to understand because it's layered on top of a simple world. So you can see what is the behavior of the simple world and what is the complexity arising from the new thing that you're trying to understand.
0: You know, going going back to something you said, which was really interesting. You said there was a shift in how you were making games, and in particular with Braid, where it felt more like a shift from you being the smart person who's sort of figuring out how to do this new thing to you being more of like a conduit through which you know you're you're sort of highlighting things that are maybe already there, and 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 you said curating. Um, I'm curious what the correlate in terms of your inner world is like with, with respect to that shift, because obviously that's a shift in how you're making games, but then that's a shift that, like you said, comes from a certain level of maturing as maybe as a designer and maybe isn't even as a human.
1: My day to day life, um, just in terms of not even exterior signs of how I live, but just like internally, how I relate to the world around me is very different now than it was you know in two thousand five when I started making trade and there's definitely been a substantial learning process over that time um, I'm not sure how much of it goes in what direction though right like you know maybe due to other things I do in the world i Gained a little bit more insight into uh things that I found interesting and applied that to games but but then also at the same time, I think this exploration of things via game design really taught me some things that are very subtle and hard to express um, but you know the thing the thing that's one one of the many things that's fascinating to me about video games is that they are basically tiny universes. So if you want to uh, think about what it means to be in a world like the one that we live in, then one could certainly do worse than to build a little tiny toy universe and see what happens there, you know, because it's just, um, it's a way, especially if, if it's in your interest to look at what happens there and then make an interesting game out of it, um, it's a way of training observational, uh, facilities, right. Or, um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to talk about. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to say more about that specifically without going off on a whole, like, you know, physics tangent and stuff. Uh, but it's been, it's, it's just been a very interesting trip. And I do, I did not before necessarily see game design as a spiritual practice. It was something that I worked hard at, but now it is definitely a kind of a spiritual practice. Um, And I don't know if it's that because it's just me doing it and that's the way that I lean or whether you know whether there's really something there. I'd try to show other people and say, "Hey, come check this out." Still a little early to call that one in. You know, everybody has a different path to understanding what they understand. I think, and my particular one, you know, as I mentioned for for a while, I was thinking a lot in very sciencey ways, and I still do. Um, and one thing that thinking in very sciencey ways gives you. Especially like low-level physics, like you know quantum mechanics and stuff like that, or even you know general relativity. It, it it makes you think about just like what, how could this world be constructed, that it is the way it is, right? I mean that's sort of a fundamental question of physics. But then if you also if you have a little bit of a spiritual bent to you, you're maybe more accepting of certain things in physics than. A lot of people are like, if you just look at what we know from science, then we know, for example, it's, it is known, right? That what we perceive as normal day to day happenings, like I get up and I eat breakfast and I make decisions and those decisions have outcomes, like at some level, it looks very likely like all of that's an illusion just from science. Like you don't even have to get mystical in any way to come to that conclusion. Like general relativity tells you that. So, you know, once you see that, then you can start building models in your head. And and once you start encountering, um, you know, certain kinds of spiritual ideas, you can have these other models that are probably not right, but they're like analogies, right? Like, Oh, you know, I can sort of think about what what a universe outside of time would be like because I have these mathematical concepts and I have these scientific concepts that help me with that. So one way that game design, and it's certainly not the only way, but one way that game design can be a spiritual practice is to augment that kind of model making and that ability for personal visualization of spiritual concepts because you are building universes. And especially if you're doing the kind of experimental uh, changing of laws of universes like I do often, then you're really, you're really thinking about them on a really fundamental level. Like what, what is created when I put things together in a certain way? And that is, can be a very deep question if you're willing to let it be very deep and if you're willing to let it inform your everyday life and the way that you see the world.
0: is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network.